0: to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin. Today I'm joined by a very special guest, Brigadier Doug Gibson, the UK Defence Advisor. Brigadier, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks very much, Stephanie. It's really good to be here. I'm delighted to be uh, invited. Uh, real honour. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So, can you tell us a little bit about your career, how you got here?
1: Yeah, so I'm a British Army officer. I've done it for about three decades and uh, spent the first half of my career doing. The normal kind of command jobs. I'm a royal engineer, so a civil engineer, operational tours in Northern Ireland and Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. And then the second half of my career, I've spent a little bit of time in procurement. Uh, and then subsequent to that and the war college, I went to Israel and worked in Jerusalem on the security coordination team between Israel and Palestine. And then I find myself here in Ottawa. I've been here for 18 months working in the defense team. And I can tell you a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, I'd love to hear. So, I mean, because I think for a lot of listeners, they hear that you're the UK defense advisor, not not the attaché, (laughs) I had that wrong earlier. So can you please explain what what is it that your role here is?
1: Yeah, sure, so attachés and advisors is just a a play on words. The bottom line, it's a bit like high commissioners and ambassadors. Ah. Uh, If you're in a Commonwealth country, then you are an advisor. And if you're in a non-commonwealth country, you're an attaché. Oh, of course. That's so really interesting. So ambassadors and attaches go together and high commissioners and advisers go together. Right. The role, though, is, is identical. So I guess the headline of the role is to be the UK chief of defence staff's foot on the ground in the country. And and Canada does the same. So I have, I, I have a one-star brigadier over in London who I talk with very regularly representing Canada's CDS in London. And really, I'm here to... Cover off anything that is to do with defence. And I say that because it's quite broad. It might be a senior visitor coming from the UK to Canada. So, last week, for example, we had uh, Jeremy Quinn, the Minister for Defence Procurement, who was here for the CanSec conference and speaking at that. But he met with three Canadian ministers while he was here. And my job and the job of my team is to facilitate uh, that visit. It might be sending people away. Um, for conferences, so the Shangri-La dialogue that's ongoing this week. We would provide input to that. What sort of information do the UK people attending need to understand Canada and the key issues that Canada is interested in? It might be senior military visitors, so we have the second sea lord, the the second in command of the Royal Navy, coming to Halifax in a couple of weeks' time. So there's all of that kind of high-level engagement. My day job really is to have Good relationships with the senior people both in the DND uh, and in the services so that as and when a question comes my way I've got those relationships ready uh, and we're able to have a, an honest conversation with one another. We also have 39 exchange officers in Canada so these are UK officers who do real jobs in the chain of command for Canada's armed forces. Maybe that's a naval architect over in Esquimalt or it might be a fast jet trainer up in Cold Lake or it might be someone on the staff at the Canadian Forces College in Toronto, or it might be somebody working on the Canadian Surface Combatant Programme here in Ottawa, and so on. So 39 of those, they don't work for me, but I look after them, uh, and so they're a really useful way of me keeping my finger on the pulse as to what's going on and what matters in Canada. Most of my time I spend, I'm Ottawa-based, but most of my time I spend in Ottawa, in the DND and in the CAF headquarters but I also then do quite a lot of travelling, partly to see the exchange officers, but partly to find out what's really going on on the ground across the Canadian Armed Forces. Um, And when we have five uh, priorities that that I try and follow up, the first is at the Arctic and the way in which the UK can learn from Canada on operating in the frozen north. We have sustainability and greening as one of our priorities, so a challenge for every military across the world. How do we make sure that we contribute to government uh, targets for climate, some real challenges, but equally some significant money in R&D that the military can lead the way on on things like greening jet engines and that sort of thing.
0: I I don't mean to interrupt, but what's really interesting is we recently did a podcast with Mike Wright, who of course is the head of uh, CFNCOM, and uh, he spoke a lot at length about the importance of the environments now mm. in terms of DND thinking. So that, that's really interesting. And, and one of the things I think people don't realize is just how much actual land the Canadian military controls and having to maintain and be the good stewards of that on top of having to do everything with climate change. So it's, it's really interesting to hear you, you mention the Arctic and greenery first yeah, in yeah. terms of the UK relations with Canada.
1: Yeah, and the UK is in exactly the same position as Canada. Uh, if you look across government departments, the d Is the single biggest uh, emitter of carbon uh, across all government departments. Same in the UK. Right. I mean this is a tough challenge when you think that we've got fast jets and we've got big ships but that doesn't make us exempt from finding solutions um, to those things. Right. So that's that was our second priority and then we have technology and innovation so that's really about tapping into expertise that Canada has. Canada, a world leader on things like AI, quantum, cyber, and UK is dead keen to make sure that we we tap into that. Also really keen to make sure that we're not duplicating um, what we do, and that as a Five Eyes ally, we're working together rather than in competition. So we have our chief scientific advisor coming, that arrives tomorrow afternoon, and spending time with the chief executive of, of DRDC on Wednesday and Thursday, looking at exactly this. What can we do together? Where are the new initiatives that we can take together? Indo-Pacific won't surprise you. Similar to Canada, we announced in our integrated review a year ago that we wanted um, to put more emphasis into the Indo-Pacific, and I can talk a bit more about that later if if you like. And then space, that's the fifth of our priorities. And like Canada, we've just stood up a space command, and we're looking at the ways in which we can address some of the defence related space issues with satellites, with GPS, with communication. So yeah. those are our five priorities.
0: That's really interesting. I'm, and, and you did mention there integrated review. and There was a defense strategic review that went along with that. And I'm I'm really curious about that because Canada has announced that it is going to be doing a defense review. And I mean, it's a very separate process from what's happening in the UK. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the UK approached that. And perhaps we, we'll link to that in the, in the show notes for everyone uh, to click on if, if they want to see it. But it was, it was a very comprehensive Process.
1: Yeah, sure. So it, it was a long time in coming and it was slightly held up by world events, be those COVID and various other things. But nonetheless, it was published just over a year ago. I guess the headline was that it was a whole of government review. So it wasn't a defense review. We've had plenty of defense reviews in the past. But this was an integrated review integrated across foreign policy, defense, security, trade and aid. And of course the idea behind that was that we've moved into a new world order where it's not good enough just to be able to go and fight a war and then come home. Actually every problem in the world is going to require input from all of those different ministries and a joined up approach. And Ukraine is an absolute case in point. We don't have boots on the ground firing weapons from the UK, so it set out to spend a load more money on defence, 24 billion across the next uh, spending period. It injected really significant money, 6.6 billion into research and development, and that's been ring-fenced. Typically, that's money that snaffled by higher priorities, as and when there's budgetary pressure. But this was con- conscientiously ring-fenced for R&D, because there's a recognition that the new world order needs us to really get on the front foot Um, with technology. It put some money into some specific programs, upgrading our Challenger tanks, upgrading our future air system. It put considerable um, priority against and that's absolutely a pan department effort. So the new cyber center is not led by defense but it includes security and all the intelligence agencies as well as defense and pulling that together is a real challenge. Um, And it also announced a intent to put out a new defence industrial strategy, slightly on the back of opportunity from Brexit. That gave us some freedoms that we hadn't previously had. So a year on, we've launched a space strategy, pardon the pun, and that sets out the way in which we're going to own satellite um, capability. It sets out the way in which, across the five eyes, we're going to contribute to intelligence uh, gathering capability from space. We've set out our industrial strategy, which really talks to the way in which we can both address the need for strategic defense capability. And we've seen this with Ukraine. We've seen that if we don't have production lines, which have been kept alive, then when we blow the whistle, it's much more difficult for industry to ramp up production. So we need strategic supply chains to be be preserved. It talks too about the way in which we deal with industry. So we're now wanting to involve industry at a much earlier stage in our procurement so that uh, we're hearing not just what we want but what industry can provide. And if Jeremy Quinn were sitting next to me, he'd tell you that he's very big on getting a a 70% solution now rather than a gold-plated 100% solution in 15 years' time. The world's moving fast, so we need to move fast as, as a military with it.
0: So that's really interesting. It's it's funny because in in Canada, sometimes people talk about, well, should we do reviews? Because the time the reviews come out, they they get shifted by events. And and we've talked about Ukraine. But in some ways, some of the stuff that that I think is in that strategic review is is coming out in in the Ukraine conflict. And I'd love to to chat with you a little bit about that. And you've mentioned it a number of times. But perhaps first we'll start off with the fact that there's been announcements that, of course, Sweden and Finland will be joining NATO or applying to join NATO. And the UK has been offering security guarantees to these countries and has really been developing partnerships with your Eastern European countries, particularly Poland. And I'm wondering if you can maybe talk about what that is and why that is and what this actually means for, for UK defence in Europe in the post-Brexit era.
1: Yeah, so, of course, Ukraine is, you know, really fundamental to us at the moment. It's where the challenge lies. And when you look at the map and you see who's next door to it, then I think that's why we're so keen um, to support Finland and Sweden joining NATO. So we've made very clear statements that that's something we will support. And I think the initiatives taken by the Prime Minister and the Defence Secretary and the Foreign Secretary just to make clear our level of support, even whilst that negotiation is ongoing, is really just to, to shore up the extent to which we will support it. So I guess it's a way of just pushing the diplomatic process on, but equally being really clear to our NATO allies where the UK stands.
0: And there's been some large uh, naval exercises in the, the in, in basically the Scandinavia, in, in the Baltic states, that the UK has been a part of.
1: Yeah, so we've been part of the Joint Expeditionary Force, Jeff, um, for a number of years. That's really come of age and been hastened, I guess, by the Ukraine crisis. But this sees, in, the, in, in that area of the Baltics, it sees us really putting big effort into our ability to operate in cold weather and cold water, our ability to cooperate with other naval allies, and our ability to do air-land integration from a navy-based or a maritime-based force
0: right so the other thing that i think the uk has been really uh, leading on in some ways is this pre-bunking in, in its approach to disinformation in terms of putting out uh declassified intelligence assessments i mean there were some really interesting ones i, I always look every day to see what the assessment's going to be and because i i just find this so fascinating the kind of uh way that the UK has led with these and and if um, listeners are not familiar what I'm talking with but every day the UK MOD Twitter account puts out a declassified intelligence assessment as well of its understanding of the conflict that day. And what, today it was all about uh, Snake Island and the air defense systems and, and some of the fighting that's going on in parts of, of eastern Ukraine. And But it's, it's also covered other kinds of, of information. It's not just updates about what's happening on the ground, but also kind of assessments as to what Russia is planning, what Russia's doing, how well it's doing, what the impact of some of its losses will be. And, and that's a really, really interesting thing because I, I can't think of another country that has really put out information in this way, at least in the modern era, to such a wide audience. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the UK's approach to to declassifying intelligence, making it available, and and what, what the implications of that really are.
1: Yeah, so great summary of what we've been trying to do and it does feel that it's landed landed really well and I think this is new so we've never done this before and it's all it may have been the UK that Twitter account puts it out but this is this is absolutely a five eyes um, intelligence effort and the the intelligence sharing is the backbone of, of five eyes But I think what we're seeing is the nature, the character of warfare has changed. And when you're up against an adversary who is absolutely using disinformation as one of its key weapons, then you need not just to sit quiet and know that it's disinformation, you need to put out there that it's disinformation. So we made uh, a decision very early on to be much quicker about the rate at which we can declassify our intelligence and to be much more bold about the intelligence that we, we declassify. And so the analysis has gone out, not just the, not the raw intelligence, but the analysis that has gone out is at a much greater level than ever was done, say, before in Afghanistan um, or Iraq. And the effect, and the reason we do it, is to provide a counter-narrative um, to the Russian strategic information campaign, which, by the way, is extremely powerful. And if you live within Russia, you you are largely believing everything that's coming out from Moscow. That's what we needed to counter. And I think early in the campaign, arguably, we, we wrong-footed President Putin by doing this. I think he thought he would move a much easier ride as he headed towards Kiev. I think we've shored up public opinion across the alliance, so where. Some might have wavered, and some might have wondered whether this is an alliance that they want to stand shoulder to shoulder um, with. I think we've given those politicians the evidence they need to, to to remain to remain loyal. I think we've given Ukraine the necessary decision action headroom that it needs to where it can be be on the front foot. And I think, Steffi, we should expect this to be much more normal in the future. I think hybrid warfare, which gets talked, this is, this is hybrid warfare in action. You know, it is not simply conventional forces lining up either side of a battlefield and fighting one another. The war is being fought in multiple domains. And so this is the intelligence response. Yeah, and I think it's, it's worked. The challenge now, of course, is 103 days on, to keep the publics. It's been a way of keeping Ukraine in the public eye, the fact that we're publishing everyday intelligence assessments. But I think there is a challenge now to keep the public as interested as it has been, and therefore keep the alliances, politicians, as interested as they have been. So I think there'll be more stuff coming out.
0: Right. And I mean, you mentioned in the introduction and and just having your bio in front of me, you've spent a lot of your career in 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 conflicts where or areas of the world where there is a lot of disinformation i mean we often associate it with russia but you know this was a part of the islamic state this was part of the other parts of the world where there, there's a lot of actors who are trying to muddy the waters are are you surprised at all that for all of its kind of much vaunted capabilities that russia has underperformed in this space i mean when we think about you know, what Russia has done really in the 2010s, we do know that that Russia has been very effective. And so I've been trying to figure out, has Russia underperformed or have we successfully adapted?
1: Maybe it's a bit of both. Right. Um, I think everybody has been surprised at Russia's performance. I think everyone was surprised in the early days at the lack, as it appeared, of connection between strategic plan, and tactical effect. So I think that there is part of it is is Russia not doing what we had expected. But equally, I do think the the West—I mean, it's wider than the West—but if I call that call it that generically—I think the West has been pretty impressive in the way it's responded, the way it's unified. Um, you know, and of course, lots of commentators have said this has helped NATO in its hour of working out. What it actually was about to come together with a very clear challenge and to respond accordingly, and arguably NATO will come out of this far stronger than it that it went in.
0: And I, I guess the other point I would make, and, and you said this just a minute ago, and we're, we're as as we're recording this, you know, I mean, there's this terrible slog right now in, in the area of Siverdansk and other parts of, of Eastern Ukraine, and there there is the importance of, of attention span, right? And and Putin, I I don't if he's thinking that he can wait out the West, I don't necessarily think that's a a silly position to hold because we we tend to get distracted by daily things, by the new shiny objects. Uh, We tend to get bored uh, with conflict. So what do you see as the challenges perhaps for the West
1: going forward? It's a challenge for the West, but it's also a challenge for Putin. Right. He's been expending huge amounts of cash and huge amounts of resource, ammunition, people on this. And there's limits. And so I think we shouldn't underestimate the, the limits that the Russian machine has. It felt to me that it had overstretched itself by trying to operate both in the north and in the east at the same time. So a strategic decision to move to the east. But supply chains are huge. Industrial capacity is limited. They've been, Russia has been expending huge amounts, particularly of its smart munitions, over the last weeks to make progress, which they certainly never would have anticipated, needing to use either that volume or that complexity of weapon system to achieve. So, so there, is a, there is a side which says, I think, don't underestimate the impact that this is having on the Russian military machine. But to your point of strategic patience from the West, absolutely. But you know, at a political level, everyone is absolutely as behind um, its support for Ukraine as it has been, my read of it. We're seeing world leaders meeting still on a very regular basis. I know the defense ministers meet on a very regular basis to discuss Ukraine and pretty much nothing else. So I think the political commitment is still there we'll need to watch and see whether the public, you know, appetite to have Ukraine as its number one headline remains. And that's as I say, maybe that's an area where in terms of our information campaign, our publication of intelligence, maybe we need to come up with some some new ways of of keeping the thing at the front of people's minds.
0: Yeah, it's interesting and I know in Canada I've often heard officials talk very admirably about what the UK is doing just in terms of its declassification. And I think that there is, you know, an appetite in Canada, which is very, very reluctant sometimes to, to, to be public about intelligence, to, to do the same thing. And we're seeing Canada take baby steps in that direction. But as we're coming to the end of the podcast, I I I can't help but notice we are recording this on on June 6th on D-Day. Of course, Canada, UK have been allies for a very long time. And there's really maybe just two things I'd I'd like to ask you about going forward, just perhaps in the context of the UK-Canada defense relationship generally. The first one is the Arctic, I think is just such an interesting idea. And you mentioned that first as your first priority. And I remember when I first, I think it was five or six years ago when I first saw the UK arctic strategy in the U- in the UK and I lived in the UK for a long time and when there was five centimeters of snow London stopped um, and I thought really is this going to be something that, that the UK wants to do but it really has been something that that has been pursued and it, it is in the integrated review and you mentioned it as the, the priority for cooperation here. So um, can you speak a little bit to that in terms of, of both kind of UK objectives in the Arctic, but also in terms of, of how the UK and Canada are partnering in that space?
1: Sure. So we're not an Arctic nation, but we are a neighbor to a number of Arctic nations and we share alliances with a number of Arctic countries. Canada being one. I think our view of the Arctic has, over the last 20, 30 years, been largely European in its nature. When I was a troop commander, one of the other troop commanders was the Allied Command Europe Rapid Reaction Force, and they would go and train in Norway, and they would be ready for cold weather operations, but they were largely based and Scandinavian based. What I think we're seeing as a result of the integrated review is that In terms of security of the Atlantic, um, the Atlantic stretches across to Canada. And so what we were wanting to do through our... We published a defence contribution to the High North, an Arctic strategy by the MAD. We published that earlier this year. Really what it seeks to do, specifically with respect to Canada, is be supportive. what, What can we offer Canada? What can we learn from Canada? Is that naval operations? Is that having people who are trained um, to operate on land in the cold weather. And so the kinds of activity that we're doing, we we signed a memorandum of understanding between the Royal Navy and the Canadian Coast Guard last year, and that's partly what brings HMS into Canada this year, who will go up on Operation Nanook and Protector and her crew will learn firsthand from the experts in Canada what it means and how to, how to operate in cold weather. We're doing uh, a number of land-based cold weather training activities i went to winnipeg and saw cold weather training in february that would be cold that was cold and we're going to be doing some army to army training in northern quebec next year so these are small steps but they're about us better understanding um, what operating in cold weather what operating in the frozen north looks like it's not us wanting to uh, do anything other than be able to be supportive when called to be, uh, to be so.
0: And do you think that's because there's a strategic recognition that with climate change that the north is going to be more of a strategic area going forward?
1: Yeah, so as the, as, as the ability to passage through the Arctic becomes more possible, as critical minerals um, are in greater demand and become more available from the high north as both from a trade point of view, but also from a military point of view, as there's more activity um, in the high north. These are important things for the UK and the UK's security and the UK's contribution to the global security.
0: And then I guess the second question I had is really, there's a, there was a sub-agreement in the fall of 2021, and I always emphasize it's a sub-agreement, but it's been dubbed AUKUS, right? Australia, UK, US. And there's been a lot of anxiety here in Canada that, I mean, these are, our, we're watching our best friends go off and, and have this kind of, of, of arrangement, and maybe we feel we weren't invited to the party. Canada's a chronic joiner. We like to join things. It doesn't always make sense for us to join things, but we always feel that we should be joining things. And, and that was a very specific agreement, but we're seeing, a lot of talk now about enhanced technology cooperation as a result of that three eyes agreement. And you mentioned that the scientific advisor is coming here to Canada. So I was wondering, I mean, as as a nation that sometimes get, gets anxious about not being invited to the cool kids table, what what's going on with with AUKUS, and and how do you see Canada's relationship within that kind of five eyes, three eyes situation?
1: Mm-hmm. So I I think I've talked quite a lot about Five Eyes, particularly when it comes to things like Ukraine, and I've talked mostly about intelligence sharing, but of course it's much bigger than that. It's sanctions, it's troop deployments, it's aid, military and non-military aid. When it comes to AUKUS, my understanding is that that was a deal which was underpinned principally by Australia's desire for a nuclear-propelled submarine, something that Canada does not have a requirement for. It does have a requirement for a future submarine that it's working through at the moment, and who knows if that requirement turns into something that the UK can help with, we'll be delighted to do so. But you're right at the second uh, pillar, if you like, of the AUKUS deal was a load of activities in the sort of high-tech science. From what I know, there's no um, reason why why Canada can't be involved in those. And indeed, That is exactly why um, Angela McLean, the MOD scientific advisor, is coming over this week, is to talk about some of those things. So where Canada has expertise in quantum, in cyber, in AI, I think, as I mentioned before, we are really keen not to be competing with one another, but to be cooperating with one another. That was a message that Jeremy Quinn, the Defence Procurement Minister, brought very clearly to the table last week. Let's not... be in competition. There's enough competition out there without us as allies competing. So I think there is a really rosy future for Canada and the UK bilaterally and then for Canada within the Five Eyes construct to really bring to the table the strengths that it has and let's concentrate on those and let's make those into hard deliverables rather than worry too much about the bits which Canada is less interested in.
0: And finally, I guess just referring to the you know, comment I mentioned earlier that this being D-Day and, and the UK and, and Canada having uh, fought in a number of conflicts around the world and, and now both supporting Ukraine, is there, what is, how is the relationship between the two forces today?
1: Yeah, so that's a great, uh, a great way to finish. Because the relationship is, is really, it's based on history, as you mentioned. It's based on shared values. It's based on a common understanding of threats and of right and wrong. I've talked to you about the footprint of Exchange Officers that we have here. Our largest number of Exchange Officers in any one country outside the United States. We have regular senior level dialogue. Two weeks ago, the armies spoke one to another, sharing lessons, sharing plans, looking for opportunities to train together. I was up in Wainwright uh, a fortnight ago on exercise Maple Resolve where we brought a, an infantry company from the Royal Welsh over to join in that exercise. We've talked about Ukraine and you know, the joint training effort that went uh, on between Canada and the UK. In, U- We've got battle groups both deployed in Latvia and Estonia. The commander of the Air Force will go to the Royal International Air Tattoo in a couple of weeks and meet with. The chief of the air staff um, in the UK. And
0: just for our audience, the, the tattoo is at the big air show in the UK. It
1: is, yeah. So, and I could go on. A second Sea Lord visits Halifax um, at the end of this month. Minister of Defence Procurement here last week. Talked about the chief scientific advisor, HMS Protect. The list is really long. There's a whole load of stuff that goes on together. And at every level, from the most senior to the most junior, there are bonds that are live, well and growing. And so, yeah, the relationship is really, really strong. But we're in a world that needs strong relationships. We need to stand shoulder to shoulder. Ukraine is a great example. But if it wasn't Ukraine, there are plenty of other reasons why we need to maintain that. And really, that's my role here, is maintaining that bilateral relationship in a way that's as fresh and as strong as it possibly can be
0: thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, and having, I guess, a relationship with us at <laughs> in, in Intrepid World. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you today.
1: been my pleasure. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me.